Erev Tov, good evening. We are continuing with our second half of the Shi'ul, part two of Infatuated with Innovation. And last week we explored the attitudes of Sephardic Chachamim towards the non-traditional Ashkenazi movements. And I intend to continue that today, Bezad Hashem, but to uncover the other side of this conversation. So if last week we discussed the motivations of traditionalism, the values of innovation out of respect to that which comes before, as opposed to innovation in Judaism, which comes out of a resentment, perhaps, to that which came before, Rabbi Shem Tov Gagin was introducing us at the end of last week to a book, a book that I brought along with, us, with me today just to show you, and I attached it as a PDF uh, file in the Google Classroom as well, if you would like to see it. But for right now, let's just read together the last few words that Rabbi Shem Tov Gagin left us off with, because this will segue us into the more sinister side of the interdenominational debates and arguments and uh, a position that we are very much victims of, but it's, that was really taking a, a turn for the worse. In this period of Jewish history, the United Kingdom is at the center of it. A European businessman is the one who's pulling all the strings of the puppets. And that's today's show. We're going to be getting into the more sinister side of the machloket between traditionalist and more innovative camps of Judaism through the writings of Chachmei Sfarad, who lived in that generation. But let's, let's do this one at a time. So if you open up the PDF that I attached last week, you can find it in two places. Either the bottom of the Zoom invitation, or you can find it in the Google Classroom under the Winter Materials section. I update that every week to include whatever new materials we'll need. And you want to find the source sheet that says Keter Shem Tov, Volume 3. Do you see that PDF? Wonderful. So Keter Shem Tov was telling us, and the truth is, which page of the PDF that is exactly, I will tell you in just a moment. Right before section three, if somebody gets to it before I do. Does anybody have the PDF? Where does section three start? It says... Um, page eight. Page eight, is that, is that what it is in the PDF, page eight? I have a different version than you have, so my pages are a little different. Yeah. Okay, so page eight. I, and then, have it, I have section three on page 10. Section three on page 10. Roman numerals, yeah. Okay, do the Roman numerals match up to the PDF page numbers? Right, yeah, no, so X is page, page 8 of the PDF. That's right, page okay. Page 10 of the actual book. So it's page 10 of the actual book, but page, very good. No, that's exactly what, more, that's what I wanted. I wanted to know which page it was in the, in the PDF. He was discussing in section 2 all about the evils of this new movement that view themselves as having the permission to uproot and destroy anything that came before them. In the top of the page, he writes, Umedamim ba'atzamam, they, they view themselves, these movements think of themselves. Kihema bedin hagadol shibiru that they are the supreme court, the national bedin of the Jewish people in Jerusalem. 
ולהם נפתחו שערי חומה ובינה, and not just that they have the authority of the Supreme Court, but they also think that they have the wisdom of the National Court of Amisrael. והרשות נתונה להם בעין יפה לגרוע ולשנות בכל מנהגי ישראל. And they believe, they think, that they have the permission to do whatever they want with the Torah and the customs of the Jewish people. נגד שני עמודי ההוראה, מרן הבית יוסף והרמן, they think they could do whatever they want and say whatever they want in the face of our great teachers, the בית יוסף, that's מרן רבי יוסף קארו, and the רמה, רבי משה ישרדיש. ומה שקבעו כבר כל המנהגים הקדושים לנו בשולחן ערוך, which they already instituted, they already wrote down and codified for us all of the holy customs of עם ישראל בשולחן ערוך. נמצא בידי ספר יקר הערך. There's a book in my possession, says Rabbi Shem Tov Gagin. It is very precious to me. Hakolel bo kama mikhtavi mikol rabbanei vegeonei asafaradim. That contains in it many, many letters from the rabbis and the giants of the Sefaradim vehashkenazim shabaolam and ashkenazim and all of the rabbis in the world. Asher machu macha aza neged elu hareformistas who protested vehemently against these reformers. And at the head of all of those who signed this letter against the reform movement, Zekan Avi is the grandfather, my father, who Hagaon, Harishon Letzion, Vachacham Bashi Beretz Hakodesh. He's the great rabbi, the Rishon Letzion, the chief Sephardic rabbi of Israel, Vachacham Bashi. Now, this is interesting. These are two titles that really contradict each other. Someone know a little bit of history can help me out. There's the Rishon Letzion, who's the chief Sephardic rabbi of Israel. And you have a Chacham Bashi. Who's a Chacham Bashi? Anybody? Not all at once. Very good. Chacham Bashi is essentially the Turkish chief rabbi. I mean, essentially, he's the, the rabbi of all of the Jews in Turkey. It's, one, it's perhaps one of the highest rabbinic offices in the world after the destruction of the Jewish uh, independent nation. Chacham Bashi, he mentions here, so how do you have both a Chacham Bashi and a Rishon Zion? Is because at this point in time, the Turks had consolidated these offices. They had decided that whoever was the Rishon Zion in Israel would also be the Chacham Bashi of the entire empire. And because of that, uh, the first person really, one of the first people to occupy this position is none other than the great-grandfather of Rabbi Shem Tov Gagin, who is Rabbi Chaim Avraham Gagin, who is mentioning right now, כבוד מורנו הרב חיים אברהם גגין, זיכרונו לברכה. Just a brief few words about רבי חיים אברהם גגין. So we know a little bit about the personalities we're talking about. רבי חיים אברהם גגין was born in the year 1787 in Constantinople, and he dies in Jerusalem in 1848, so about 61 years old, in Yerushalayim. He's buried in Yerushalayim in the Mount of Olives. He serves not just as the chief rabbi of Israel and the Chacham Bashi of the Ottoman Empire, but he also serves as the Rosh Shiva of Yeshivat Betel. Have you heard of Yeshivat Betel before? Someone help me out. What is Yeshivat Betel? It's like the Very good. In the old city of Yerushalayim, there's the Yeshiva of Mekubalim. The Yeshiva of Mekubalim is uh, known as Yeshivat Betel. You, if you've been to the old city, you've certainly seen it before. It has a beautiful silver door with gold on it in different gates of Jerusalem. You probably walked by it and had no idea what it was. Uh, over there in Yeshivat Mekubalim, I used to pray Mincha of Shabbat there. Uh, it was a fascinating thing for me, how you could pray Mincha for Shabbat for like three and a half hours. It's unbelievable uh, 
It was a very long tefillah. I remember. I'm exaggerating. Minchav Shabbat was about an hour and a half. Kabbalat Shabbat was a three and a half hour tefillah. And they have a whole siddur. It's this big, just for Friday night. All of these Kabbalistic meditations they do. You know, there's a time in my life I like to explore different Jewish groups. And there was a time where I was hanging out in Yeshivat HaMekubalim. Rosh Yeshivat HaMekubalim, at this point, is Rabbi Chaim Avram Gagin. The founder of Yeshivat HaMekubalim. Have you heard of him before? Rabbi Shalom Sharabi was a Yemenite Chacham who comes to Israel and the, you know, the stories of him flying on a magic carpet and all kinds of interest the world was uh, condensed for him, Kvitzat HaDerech, so on and so forth. And he comes to Eretz Israel, where he, well, first to Syria, and then he comes to Eretz Israel, where he becomes the chief rabbi of the Mekubalim in the old city of Jerusalem, which is really just Jerusalem. There was no really other city of Jerusalem. Rabbi Shem Tov Gagin is very unique because his heritage comes from both the Gagin family and from the Sharabi family. He is related to both. He is a descendant of both. So this Yeshivat HaMekubalim is in his bones from two different directions. As the Chacham Bashi, Rabbi Chaim Avram Gagin was a man of considerable power. So maybe this is an important note. I'm asking for you to pray for me that we finish today everything that I want to finish in today's shiul because we're bringing up so many personalities that it would be remiss if I didn't explain to you anything about them but I'm going to need some help not getting carried away about all of them. The office of Chacham Bashi in Sephardic eyes starts a long time ago. So you have a Jewish king of Israel. Remember the king of Israel, Amisad, begins with Moshe Rabbeinu, transfers to Yeshua. We have an official office of king beginning with which king? When do we formally have a monarch in Am Yisrael? Very good. With Shaul HaMelech, like and there's the David HaMelech, and so on and so forth. Many of those kings were righteous. Most of them were not, unfortunately. And for those who have issues with the modern state of Israel and all the problems of the modern state of Israel, how could you celebrate something that has so much corruption? Well, I don't know why you're celebrating Hanukkah, and I'm not sure why you would read the Tanakh, because most of the kings in our Tanakh were much worse than any of the leaders the state of Israel has ever had. And the story of Hanukkah is a story that is very complicated because the victory was not all that wonderful. And that's part of the celebration of the story of Hanukkah. So if you can celebrate Hanukkah, you most definitely can celebrate a holiday like Yom HaTzmaut, in all of its imperfections, you have the office after the monarchy. Let's say monarch is a really harsh word for Amisrael. The king is always kept in check by other people. Who are those other people that can keep the king in check? There's no constitution per se. There's a Torah, which is a berit, but who else? Uh, a prophet. A prophet, very good. There's, uh, the prophet is not just a, you know, some guy who prophesies. The prophet is an official office in the Jewish government. The office of a navi. You know, when there are conversations in halakha, and I don't intend to walk into this right now, conversations in halakha, whether a, pro, a, a, a ger tzedek, a righteous convert to Judaism, can be a prophet in Am Yisrael. And you see rabbis say yes, some rabbis say no. And you look at the chachamim and say, well, were there gerim that were prophets? So I think that really what people mistake here, and Rabbi Yosef Zernigan, should live and be well, he gave a shiur in our Rebbe Midrash when he was here in San Diego on this topic, which is that there are two different things. The ability to prophesy, any member of Am Yisrael can prophesy. Not only any member of Am Yisrael, any member of the world can prophesy. Any person can, is capable of reaching the level of prophecy. Rather, the conversation surrounds whether someone who was not born into Am Yisrael, at least in that first generation, has the ability to hold a political office in Am Yisrael. 
It's not a persecution of Gerim. It's like in the United States of America, where a person has to be born in the United States to be able to run for president of the United States. Not because the other people in there are not citizens, but because in order to make sure that loyalties are in one place, it's a national security measure, and it's understandable to many people. I'm not here, I'm not really, I'm not sticking my head. Anyone who knows me and my stance on Gerim Tzedek knows that I, I, I oppose much of what we see in the Jewish world and the negative attitudes of Khamenei to the to who I view to be heroes of Am Yisrael. No. When my children need to ask questions like, why should I stay Jewish? The only people in the Jewish community who have answers to that question are the people who made the choice to be Jewish. Those are the only people who can tell my children why they should be Jewish. All of the other people who are hanging around, born in Amisle, hanging around Jewish day schools, they don't have anything to add to my children's life. Other things, but none about this. The crucial questions come from the heroes of Am Yisrael, or those, like we said in our those people who join Am Yisrael, they're the righteous ones of Am Yisrael. So there's an office of prophet. There's another office. Tell me about the other office who can keep the king in check. Who decides whether the king can go to war or not? His wife. His wife. Okay, that actually, that wouldn't be a political office. It would, <laughs> it's just his life. Uh, tell me, tell me, who, who else holds a political office? Who decides when the king can go to war? Kohen Gadol. Very good, Vermeer. Thank you very much. The Kohen Gadol. When a king wants to go to war, he must consult with the Kohen Gadol first. You can also add unto here the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin are the elders sitting in Jerusalem. They're the national court of Jewish law. Really, a king is a king, but not really just an absolute authority, at least not in Judaism. There are other people, and now there could be kings who decide, we're not listening to the prophet, we don't care about the Sanhedrin. Some kings murdered the members of Sanhedrin. That might be true. But in the perfect Jewish monarchy, it's not an absolute power given to one human being. And ultimately, even that king is obligated wherever he goes to carry what in his hand? A king cannot go anywhere without a sevotoa. Why does a king carry sevotoa? Your only claim to the throne is because you abide by halakha. Because a kadosh bachu put you in this place and he gave you the permission to guide Am Yisrael. At the moment that a king betrays HaKadosh Baruch or betrays Am Yisrael, the only source of his power is his berit, is his covenant between Am Yisrael and HaKadosh Baruch And the king carries a sevotoah as a reminder to himself, I am not an absolute authority. I am here to serve my creator, and I'm here to serve the people through an office that is political, that is the leader of Am Yisrael. Now, push comes to shove, that uh, monarchy ultimately leaves the kingdom of King David against Halakha, contrary to Halakha, and is passed over right now in the story of Hanukkah to who? The Kohanim. So the, the Maccabim are Hashmonaim, Hashmonaim are Kohanim, Kohanim are from the tribe of Levi, they're Leviim, right? Kohanim HaLeviim, we see that throughout the Neviim all over the place. These, the Leviim, have no right to occupy the position of king. But they do it anyways. We know the kingdom of the Hashemunayim deteriorates rapidly, ultimately causing, whether or not you want to see it this way, this is the fact of history, ultimately causing for the destruction. Yes, they saved us in the story of the Greeks, but they are the reason, the direct reason, for why the Romans were able to come and occupy Jerusalem. So the Hashemunayim that we celebrate today are the downfall of the Jewish people on Tisha B'Av. Wrap your head around that a little bit. That the heroes that we celebrate are actually the antagonists of another story. Rabbi Yehuda HaNasi, who doesn't record much of the story of Hanukkah at all in his oral Torah, 
because he has a problem. He, he, he is from the tribe of Yehuda. He is the Nasi, he's the prince of Israel. As the prince of Israel, it was his throne that the Hashem took from him. So he records in the Mishnah and the Talmud only the very bare details of how many candles do you light, and which do you increase or decrease light, which oils can you light, but nothing about Hashem This whole story of Hanukkah has very little, if any, oral tradition surrounding it. You're not going to find the Maccabim inside of the Talmud. The story of Purim has an entire tractate dedicated to it. The story of Hanukkah, a few sentences. A few sentences. So what happens after the Romans occupy Eretz Yisrael? The Jewish people do not lose their national political autonomy. They lose certain elements of their autonomy. But they essentially govern themselves under Roman occupation. Who is their leader in Eretz Yisrael? I just told you who he was. The office of Nasi. Nasi. By the way, in Yemenite Jewish communities, the leader of the Jewish community had the honorary title of Nasi. So the Nasi, who is Rabbi Yudah Nasi, he's a king, just a king under Roman occupation. He taxes the Jews, has court systems for the Jews, imposes fines on the Jews, governs the Jews, makes laws for the Jews. This Nasi'ut continues up until we go to Babel. In Babylon, we have a person who replaces the office of Nasi. Who is that? They know him in English as an exilarch. Have you heard of an exilarch before? His name in Aramaic is Daresh Galuta, or the head of the Galut. He's the Jewish monarch in exile. So we have an office of national autonomy. It's a political office that governs the Jewish people, that funds the yeshivot, that makes laws, that imposes taxes and penalties. A self-government in Babel, in Babylon, that's called the office of Resh Galuta, the Exilarch. Once the Jews scatter after that, it really takes a turn for the worst. We move in Egypt, we find still the last remnants of an office called the Nagid. Take a guess what the Nagid is in Egypt, if I've already told you all, all the people before. He's an autonomous Jewish leader who taxes the people, who finds the people, who, who has the court systems for the people, who distributes funds to the people. This Nagid falls into the hands of Rambam, Rabbi Moshe ben Maimon, and explain to you some of his influence in the Sephardic world. He was one of the last Jewish monarchs, if you want to use such a title. His son, his grandson, and the generation of a great-grandson that already begins to be fragmenting in the Jewish community. There's a group of people who break away from the Jewish community, known as the Karaites, the Karaim. How do the Karaites come into existence? The reason why you find so many of Chachmei Sfarad persecuting the Karaites is not because of some minor difference of opinions regarding oral law and written law, but it's a political move. The leader of the Karaites is a man by the name of, who founds the Karaite movement? Anan, his name is Anan. Anan wants the office of Nagid. And in order to do that, he convinces the local Muslim authorities that his branch of Judaism is its own community. It has a different set of laws. And because of that, it needs its own Nagid. It's granted to him, and that's the deterioration of the office of Nagid. For Sepharadim living in Egypt, the birth of the Karite movement is the downfall of Jewish political autonomy in exile. That is when Galut begins. Galut truly begins at the beginning of the Karite movement, at least in the eyes of Egyptian Jewry. 
Now continue this to other places. You have in Iraq, you have in Turkey, a position of Chacham Bashi. Chacham Bashi is the chief rabbi. The Chacham Bashi, if you look him up on Wikipedia, the definition of Chacham Bashi is a person who is able to tax, a person who governs, a person who is the head of the court system for the Jewish community. The Sephardic community had Chacham Bashis up until the founding of the modern state of Israel. So for Sephardim, if you wish to define Galut, as when do we lose our national political autonomy? The answer for someone who's well-versed in Sephardic history is in the year 1948. In the year 1948, the Sephardic Jewish community enters Galut. And that comes with a twist. Because now we find ourselves in Eretz Yisrael without Jewish political autonomy, maybe in some extent, but not in the way that we had had for the last 2,000 years. And for those people who would like to declare the modern state of Israel as the first time the Jews have political autonomy, and that for 2,000 years we were in exile with no leadership, with no government, this is all a fabrication of Eurocentric Jewish history. And when we look at ourselves and we say, so we founded the state of Israel, Baruch Hashem. Why did we not model a working form of government that we had for 2,000 years in other countries? At the very least, when we founded the chief rabbinate of Israel, why did we choose to mimic the Ashkenazi rabbinate with all of its corruption? Instead of just continuing the model, the office of chief rabbi that was already in existence in Eretz Yisrael. When one begins to contemplate the deterioration from king to prince, from prince to exilarch, from exilarch to the Nagid, from the Nagid to the Chachambashi, to the chaos that we have today in the Jewish community, you can begin to appreciate just how deep into the rut of Galut we are. And on the other hand, we've begun our redemption. We've returned back to Eretz Yisrael. We've established a Jewish government and a Jewish homeland, something which we didn't do for 2,000 years. Those are complicated feelings. Welcome to Judaism. Judaism is a mature, sophisticated, complicated faith. And we owe ourselves the ability to think about things not so simplistically, but to think about things in the context of all of the good and bad that comes along with it. Rabbi Chaim Avraham Gagin is the Chacham Bashi. Essentially, for the Sephardic community, he is the last ruler or the, the, the most supreme ruler of Jews around the world. Rabbi Chaim Avram Gagin writes this book, Kinatzion. Let me just read to you the last sentence in Rabbi Shem Tov Gagin's book. And these Sephardic rabbis of Jerusalem persecuted the reform movement in order to erase them, wipe them out of the Jewish people, separate them from the Jewish people. And thanks to Hashem, says Rabbi Shem Tov Gagin, that the hand of the loyalist, the traditionalist, the Charedim, as he refers to them, that has a different connotation than what we are thinking about in today's world. When we say Charedim, is growing stronger and stronger. And the community of the reform is decreasing and decreasing. Says Rabbi Shem Tov Gagin, this is where he's leaving us off. And I left us off here last week, and it's an upsetting comment. But it's going to get more upsetting. So if you're upset, I'm sorry. We're going to make it worse today. That's what I came here to do today, to make us all upset. So this book, Kinatzion, I have a print copy. You're able to order uh, copies. I also attach a PDF. Uh, you can get these 
It's a reprodu reproduction of the old ones from a website called HebrewBooks.org. I think they're combined with Lulu printing that they print the uh, books. The print is horrendous, I just have to tell you. It's almost impossible to read many of the things that are written inside of here. But I want you to open up this book with me. So open up the PDF of Kinatzion for me. And just look here at the name. So if I have page one, page two, I want you to see the first page that looks like this. It's Kinatzion. I'm looking for a bunch of signatures at the bottom. Not actual signatures, but printed signatures. You'll see names of people. Rabbani, do you know what page that is on? In the PDF? Someone know what page is on in the PDF? No, I'm just uh, page, page 5. Page, right. page 5, very good. That's page 5. That, that makes sense. It should say 1 at the top of the page. There's an Aleph in the page before and 1. Perfect. So signed on this proclamation against the reform movement is none other. Look at the first signature. Hatsair, the young one. Young is meant as a title of humility. Chaim Avraham Gagin. This is the great-grandfather of Bishem Dov Gagin. So signed in the proclamation against the reform movement is this whole list of rabbis. Just an interesting side note, if you want. Uh, two signatures to the end. There's someone who signed Tolat Yaakov, the worm of Yaakov. It's a reference to how humble he is. Tolat Yaakov Pinchi, or Pinsi. I don't know how to pronounce his last name. This Chacham, if you're familiar with Sephardic history, anyone familiar with Rabbi Yaakov Pinsi? I think you pronounce it Pinchi. Rabbi Yaakov Pinchi is the reason why Rabbi Israel Moshe Chazan is forced to leave Jerusalem in the first place. He is one of the persecutors of the rationalist philosophical camp of Chachamim in Yerushalayim. He sits on the bedin of Rabbi Avraham Gagin. But there's a famous conversation between Rabbi Yaakov Pinchi and Rabbi Avraham Gagin, Avraham Gagin. The chief rabbi is sitting in his betadin and he quotes something from the Kuzari, a teaching of philosophy of the medieval Jews written by Rabbi Huda Halevi. And Rabbi Yaakov Pinchi says, how long will you allow this book of heresy to stay like a, like a thorn in between your teeth? And Bechim Avraham Gagin starts, starts screaming and wailing. How dare you say that about the book of Yudah Levi, about the Torah says, Pentahazovah Talevi, you should never leave the Levi. And our rabbis told us that's referring to Yudah Levi, the book of Israel. He tells all the people in the Betadin to rip their clothing because of this blasphemous thing that his fellow Dayan had said in the Betadin. There were characters here in Yerushalayim with this part in our history. But this signature of Rabbi Chaim Avraham Gagin is the beginning of a Sephardic persecution of the Reform Movement. Now let's just say that this book of Kinatzion was printed by the famous Chacham, Rabbi Israel Moshe Chazan. There's no need for me to speak much about him because last week in the United Kingdom you had a shiur from Professor Tzvi Zohar about uh, Rabbi Israel Moshe Chazan. For those of you in my kihila, we spent the whole summer studying the writings of Rabbi Israel Moshe Chazan. And for those of you who are not in either one of those two classes, so I'll send you a link afterwards, if you want to just look up Rabbi Israel Moshe Chazan was a great Chacham, born in Eretz Yisrael, led the Jewish community of Rome, finds himself in the United Kingdom as an emissary of both the Sephardic and Ashkenazi communities of Jerusalem. So that's how much faith the communities have in him. There's also a reason why he represents both of those communities. He comes to the United Kingdom under the guise of fighting the reform movement. This is very important to understand because I'm going to walk you today into a whole different world. 
There's a book that's been out of print for too many years, and I just spoke to Rabbi Abe Faur uh, last week, the son of the late Chacham Faur, uh, that this book needs to be reprinted. It's not an option. It can't just be reprinted one day. It needs to be reprinted tomorrow. It's, it's a book that is so valuable. I'm not exaggerating now. Of all of the books that I'm familiar with about this period of Jewish history, this book will change your life. I taught the entire book to my Kiyilah this summer. We spent a good two months studying this work. And I only ha- I have two copies, Baruch Hashem. One my wife is holding and one that I'm holding. I don't even have it as a PDF to share it with anybody, so I took a few pictures of the book. The book is called Rabbi Israel Moshe Chazan. Ha'ishu Mishnato, the man and his teachings, or his works, I don't know how it's translated into English. I have it in the back. The man and his works. I want to take you to the first page of text in your PDF. Last week I dropped a name, Rabbi Tzvi Hirsch Lerin. Do you remember that name I told you? Today we're going to discuss all about Rabbi Tzvi Hirsch Lerin and his wonderful contributions to the Jewish community. I'm saying that with all the sarcasm that this conversation deserves. Let's look here. So Rabbi Salam Moshe Chazan is traveling throughout the Middle East, collecting funds for different institutions in Israel. Do you know what they called these fund collectors? Today they call them Mishulachim or Mishulachim, but what, are they, what were they called traditionally? It's an acronym, Shadal. Do you know what Shadal means? Very good. The messenger of the rabbis. Yeah, he's, he's sent by the rabbis of one community to fundraise, mostly in Eretz Israel, to fundraise from different communities around the world. These were not the, what they would call in Yiddish slippers. These were not losers. These were not people that didn't have a job. That's why they sent them around the world. These were great chachamim who could come to one community, spend time in that community, impress that community with their Torah teachings, and then come back with a consistent amount of funding. And they would travel back and forth throughout their life to bring this funding to the desperate Jews who were living in Eretz Yisrael. So here he goes in the bottom of page Chaf. So it doesn't have Roman numbers, but it's by footnote 58. So in the text, there should be a 58. Misham Nasala Morocco, from here travels to Morocco. He was very impressed with the rabbis he met in, in Morocco. On the top of page Chaf Aleph, he was in, completely impressed with the generosity that the Sephardic community of Morocco was willing to offer the Jews in Eretz Israel. Mi Morocco, you see where I am on the top of the page? What page number is that in the PDF? Uh, four. Page four, thank you. Mi Morocco, he flig Rav Chazan Anglia. From Morocco, Rav Chazan sails to England. London He comes to London in the year Tafresh Hay. I didn't write down uh, secular dates, so he wants to figure it out for me, I'd appreciate it. he came as the 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 representative of, quote, The representative of the scholars and sages of the Sephardim and Ashkenazim, may God protect them, of Jerusalem. That was his official title when he came to the United Kingdom. He came there to fight against the reform movement. 
שם חיבר את ספרו דברי אמת ושלום, there he wrote his work דברי אמת ושלום, מלונדון הפליג לאמסטרדם, from London he goes to Amsterdam, שם נפגש עם צבי הרש לרן, there he meets the infamous צבי הרש לרן, שתחת ידו עברו כל הכספים מאירופה לארץ ישראל. צבי הרש לרן, who was single handedly responsible at this point in Jewish history, for all of the money that was transferred from Europe to Eretz Yisrael. This is not just a big point, it's the major point. And it's the beginning of the more sinister side of the Sephardic entry into the war against the reform movement. Let's look on the top of the next page. Sham there, who chiberet sefer Kinatzion, while he was in Amsterdam. He writes the book Kinatzion, that's the one I just showed you. Uh, the book Kinatzion, the PDF that you just looked at. Pulmus Kharif, a controversial polemic, neged ha-tnu'ah reformit against the reform movement. And then he leaves later that year out of Holland. But these footnotes here are gold. And these golden footnotes are crucial to understanding everything we need to know about this period of Jewish history. I can't even believe what time it is. Uh, let's get there, together, B'zad Hashem. Tzvi Hirsch Lern was born in 1784 and died in 1853. He was a banker and a philanthropist from Holland. And he was the head of a society called Irgun HaPkidim V'Amarkadim Shel Amsterdam, which is essentially the major organization which takes on itself the responsibility of transferring funds from Europe to Eretz Yisrael. Tzvi Hirsch Lern was known from a very young age for his very fanatic stances in Judaism. He was a, a obsessive person in terms of his religiosity. He's a prime example of ultra-orthodoxy of the European variety. Uh, he, as founder of this organization which collects money, Tzvi Hirschlern essentially argued that it doesn't make sense that all of these people should travel from Israel to Europe to collect money. Why should they come collect money? Do you know how much money it costs to bring people from Israel to London, from Israel to Holland? It's a lot of money and these people come and they waste time and they waste energy. Why don't we make this work like a bank? I'll be in charge of collecting all of the money for the Jews in Israel. They won't have to send any money. I'll have messengers on one side here and I'll have uh, representatives on the other side in Eretz Israel who will be responsible for distributing funds the way I see fit in Eretz Israel. Because whatever goes wrong when you consolidate power to one human being? Nothing, of course not. Tzvi Hirsch Lerin decides to change the face of Jewish history. Not only is he satisfied by putting together an organization which he tries to prove is more efficient at fundraising for the Jews of Eretz Israel, he also works on the legal side, especially in the United Kingdom to get the government to ban rabbis from traveling from Eretz Israel to Europe to fundraise for money. And he's successful. And that means that every rabbi who wants to enter in and out of most of these countries in Europe can only do so with a stamp of approval of Rabbi Tzvi Hirsch Lerin. Tzvi Hirsch Lerin doesn't only have the money, he also has the power. He has the power to stop somebody in the port and send them back to where they came from. And Tzvi Hershlern is not embarrassed at all to use this power to accomplish whatever on earth he wants to accomplish. Whatever he decides is important for him, that's what he decides is important for. And one of the first major wars he begins in Eretz Yisrael. Remember that school that we spoke about? The school that tried to teach languages and secular studies and was ultimately shut down? 
Tzvi Hirsch Leren decides that the money that he collects for the Jews of Eretz Yisrael should only go to those who study Torah full time. And the Jews who work or schools and institutions that wish to do anything like teach languages or teach any other topics aside from Torah will automatically lose their funding from Tzvi Hirsch Leren's fund, which is now the only channel to bring money into Eretz Yisrael in the first place. On top of that, Tzvi Hirsch Leren shuts down any attempt of Moses Montefiore, who was his opponent, his longtime opponent, two wealthy Jews trying to f- change the face of Eretz Yisrael. Moses Montefiore, his whole goal was this uh, movement called uh, pro- pro- uh, productivism, I'm uh, saying it translated from English, where he needed Jews to be productive. He wanted to see the Jews of Eretz Yisrael working. He wanted to see them build farms. He wanted to see them do things, make, build trades, be able to support themselves. Tzvi Hirsch Leren believed that this was the downfall of Torah Jewry in Eretz Yisrael. And so he fought tooth and nail, and as long as he ran this organization, he stopped the one major thing that Moses Montefiore wanted to start in Israel, and that was, what could be the most evil institution you would found in, the, in, in Yerushalayim of this century? Tell me. What would be the worst institution that would threaten Tzvi Hirsch Leren's ultra-Orthodox ideals? You could guess. You don't have to be right. You could just guess. You would think a university, but nobody tried to found a university at this point of time in Palestine. Maybe some sort of a kibbutz movement that happens later. Miriam, what are you saying? Some sort of alliance movement that was founded by Baron Rothschild. Okay, so you're going to think maybe some kind of alliance movement. Very, the main opposition that he had was towards founding a Jewish hospital in Jerusalem. He did not want the Jews of Jerusalem to have their own medical facilities. Tell me why. What could be the danger of a hospital in the middle of, the, of Yerushalayim? And what greater need could the community have than a place to take care of their health? Who is going to come be doctors in this new hospital in Jerusalem? Jewish hospital in Jerusalem. He was encouraged worse than secular studies. He was encouraged, he was a, a, a fear, a great fear, that the doctors who were educated in a secular education would come to Jerusalem. And because a doctor is such a noble position, especially in the Jewish community, especially then, these doctors would have disastrous effects on the Jewish community by showing them that you could be both a Jewish and a medical professional. And to Tzvi Hirsch Leren, in his 100 years of this organization that he solely controls, of the funding going to Eretz Yisrael, denies the Jews in Eretz Yisrael the ability to have a medical institution that will take care of themselves. Now if you want for just a moment to think about the current issues that we have with ultra-Orthodoxy in Israel, struggles with the kolal movement, the people who just study all day and don't work, who view it as evil to have an occupation or to study secular studies. People who are afraid of Jews who may be too educated in things that are not traditional Judaism. You can attribute so much of this mentality being programmed into the Jews of Yerushalayim by none other than Tzvi Hirschner. And not only does he have political 
influence and sway. He's responsible for all of the money. So the Jews in Israel who have no jobs, who have no food, who have no medical supplies, rely solely on Tzvi Hirsch Laren for everything. And to get on the wrong side with Tzvi Hirsch Laren means for your yeshiva to close. It means for your home to be destroyed. It means for your life to fall to pieces. It literally means to not have food in your home to feed your children. And Tzvi Hirsch Laren has no shame in manipulating every person he possibly can to turn the rabbis of Israel into his puppets to accomplish whatever he feels he needs to accomplish to fight against whatever groups he feels needs to fight against. Can someone think for just a moment why Tzvi Hirsch Lerin, sitting in Holland, would have any major opposition to Jewish groups in the United Kingdom from becoming part of this reform movement. What is the beef that Tzvi Hirsch Laren has with the reform movement? A guess, just guess. But it has nothing to do with the religion and everything to do with money, so just think. The moment the Jewish, yeah, tell, tell me, sorry, Isaac, speak. Okay, very good. So, so that would be perhaps at an educational level, but that doesn't really influence the Jews in Israel if there are doctors in London who are Jewish and, and edu- So what's bothering him here is, is worse. He's concerned about the unity of the Jewish people. Why? Why does Tzvi Hirsch Laren care about unity of the Jewish people? Because he relies on the Jewish community for the funding that makes him king of Israel. And the moment there are Jewish communities that now become independent from the mainstream organizations that have been ruling over Europe for centuries, the moment that Jews in London can splinter off from the whatever major Jewish organizations were in existence and that he received X amount of money from every year, is the moment these organizations can turn to Tzvi Hirsch Laird and say, you're a nice guy, but we don't care about you and we're not donating to your fund this year. And on top of that, to make matters worse, the reform movement, at least in this point in history, was not really a Zionistic movement. It was a movement that in Berlin had declared that Berlin is our Jerusalem and viewed very much this desire to, of nationalism, of building a homeland in Eretz Israel, of any type of settlement of Eretz Israel, didn't view this movement favorably because it made us look like bad citizens of the countries which we were in. And so Tzvi Hirsch Lerin has a financial political motivation to stop the reform movement from entrenching itself into European society and therefore cutting off his funding, cutting off his control over Eretz Israel. And so how best to fight against the reform movement than to get as many rabbis as you possibly own to fight against people that are your sworn enemies. Not their sworn enemies, but your sworn enemies. Let's read a fascinating, enlightening footnote of Rabbi uh, Yosef Aur in his book on Rabbi Yisrael Moshe Chazal. Let's look here. Footnote 61. Do you see this footnote 61? 
the reason why Rabbi Yisrael Moshe Chazan had to come to Europe uh, pretending that he was fighting against the reform movement, or not pretending, but in this, in this uh, office of fighting against the reform movement, is going to all be based on my next footnote, says Chacham Fawr. In that, in that period in history, Tzvi Hirsch Laren had manipulated the governments to prohibit the rabbis who traditionally had traveled to Europe to collect funds from entering into Europe. Kiyadua, as is known, kol ma'amatei harav Natan Amram belondon uvam sardam lebitul isur zealu betohu. All of Rabbi Natan Amram's attempts to get rid of this ban in uh, London and Amsterdam, they were all fruitless. Do you know who Rabbi Natan Amram was? We have a lot of personalities to get through today. Rabbi Natan Amram, Rabbi Natan Amram is a Sephardic rabbi who was born in Sfat in 1791. He dies in Alexandria as the chief rabbi of Alexandria in the year 1870. He was the Shadar of Tiberia and Hebron. So his job was to travel to Europe and other countries to collect money for the Jews of Tiberias and the Jews of Hebron. He was none other than the son-in-law by second marriage of a famous Syrian Chacham by the name of Rabbi Yaakov Antebi. Have you heard of Rabbi Yaakov Antebi? Have you heard of last name Antebi? Not the movie, the place in Africa. Rabbi Yaakov Antebi. We'll talk about him in just a moment. Rabbi Natan Amram sees that with his job of traveling to Chutz to collect funds, that the moment that somebody shuts down the system of rabbis traveling from Israel to Europe to collect money, two things will happen. One, you're putting too much power in the hands of one person or one organization. Instead of communities being able to choose representatives that truly represent them, to go outside of Israel and represent themselves fairly and collect money and bring that money back, you are now appointing someone you don't know. Someone who's being forced upon you to collect money and therefore gives it to you only for the purposes that they see fit. The second, Ibn Atana Imam was concerned there was lack of personal relationships between the rabbis of Eretz Israel and the Jews of Chutz Aretz, two more things would happen. One, the influence of Israeli rabbis, meaning rabbis in the central, center of the Jewish world, the influence of rabbis of Eretz Israel over communities abroad would be diminished. And therefore, in turn, not only would their religious influence be weakened, but also their financial connection to those communities. I feel less responsible to donate to a random, faceless organization than to donate to Rabbi Natan Amram when he knocks on my door saying, I was here last year, last year you donated $36 to Tzedakah, do you want to up your donation this year? And he felt that this was going to be the downfall of the Jews in Eretz Yisrael. By the way, he ultimately calls out Rabbi Tzvi Hirsch Laren and tells him, you are destroying our connection to Chutz Aretz. And none other than Rabbi Chaim Avraham Gagin comes to the rescue of Tzvi Hirsch Laren and essentially persecutes Rabbi Natan Amram until he's forced to leave Jerusalem. And how Sephardic infighting is motivated by money, we'll get to in just a moment. Just before I go further, look at the last sentence in this footnote 61. And Kol Safek, it's without any doubt, Shelo harav Chaim Avram Gagin, Velo harav Yisrael Moshe Chazan, that neither Rabbi Chaim Avram Gagin or Rabbi Yisrael Moshe Chazan yadu ma mitrachesh ma'achoi ha-pargod ve'atafkidam ha-miti tok parasha zot. He says, it's, it's absolutely certain that both Rabbi Chaim Avram Gagin and Rabbi Yisrael Moshe Chazan had no idea as to the sinister motives of Tzvi Hirsch Laren and what he was using them for to accomplish in Europe. This is a hard sentence to swallow. 
Because essentially we're talking about leaders who are being manipulated and have no awareness as to just how much they are being manipulated. But this should just tell us, instead of hating on Rabbi Chaim of Am Gagin, to realize what kind of person you have to be to manipulate the greatest rabbis of the Jewish people. And for someone to think that the rabbis of today are not also being manipulated by other people would be uh, not taking a lesson from history. Let's look at the next footnote. That was founded in Europe, this organization. That was founded by Tzvi Hirshleiman. They were there to collect money for Jews of Eretz Israel. The whole purpose of this organization was in order to save the money of the messengers and all the travel expenses. And therefore, it was forbidden on the messengers to, uh, to, to fundraise on their own. The main headquarters was in Amsterdam. And Tzvi Hirsch Laren was the living, breathing spirit. He embodied this organization. In the next paragraph, Laren Haya Ish Ashir. Laren was a very wealthy man. Who was not just successful because he inherited money from his family. He inherited the Laren Bank in Amsterdam. But he was also a tremendous business person and managed to be so successful that he was able to give over the business to his brothers so he could full-time operate this organization that collected money for the Jews of Eretz Yisrael. Sorry. He was religious. He was very extreme in his worldview. In order to put himself fully into this project, to fundraise for the Jews of Eretz Israel, he gave over his bank and his business to be run and managed by his brother, who was also his son-in-law. Listen carefully. His brother, who was also his son-in-law, because his brother married his daughter. Yes? He gave him the business to manage. Laren was brilliant, says Rabbi Faur. And everything that had to do with working people. He knew when, when, with what, and who, to use the vatsayat matarot shamdu ala perek. He knew who and what and where and when to be, who to use, who to manipulate, to accomplish whatever he needed to accomplish in his business life, and therefore translates over into his religious life as well. It should be very obvious to you that those who saw this manipulative personality stood up and tried to stop Tzvi Hirsch Laren in his tracks. Svaradim Ashkenazim. There were both Sephardic opponents of Tzvi Hirsch Laren as well as Ashkenazi opponents of Tzvi Hirsch Laren. We mentioned one of them, Rabbi Natan Amram, but there are more. Datiim anti datiim There were religious and anti-religious opponents of Tzvi Hirsch Laren. Chassidim uprushim. Both camps of the Ashkenazi community uh, had uh, reasons to oppose Tzvi Hirsch Laren. Omnam, but... Laren haya ha'uman ha'gadol b'chol asher nogea le'politika ha'ben Yehudit. Tzvi Hirsch Lemon was an expert in anything that had to do with Jewish politics. And he knew exactly how to ruin and slander the characters of whoever dared stop him from what he was trying to accomplish. Bikar, mainly, He used the Sephardic rabbis. 
במיוחד אלה שבארץ ישראל, specifically those who were at his mercy in ארץ ישראל, כשבט להכות את הפושעים ומורדים בו. He used them as his rod to lash out at anybody who dared oppose him. They were his pawns in his game of chess. אין ספק שהירידה הרוחנית והחומרית של היישוב הספרדי בארץ ישראל היא תוצאה ישירה משיתוף הפעולה בין הקהילות והרבנים הספרדיים ולרן. It is under no doubt, says Rabbi Faur, that the deterioration of Sephardic institutions in Eretz Yisrael, to the point that when we found the modern state of Israel, there's almost not a Sephardic institution to be found. From a world in which Chachamim come to, to Israel and see dozens of Sephardic synagogues, dozens of Sephardic yeshivot, organizations, government offices, to being decimated to almost nothing, says Chacham Faur, can be attributed to the collaboration between the Sephardic rabbis of Yerushalayim and Eretz Yisrael and Tzvi Hirshlein. And I'll explain to you in just a moment how. Hatiudot al parsha chashuvah zeot ben betfuz ben kitveyad merubot. Tzvi Chacham Faur, there are many documents, both written and oral, about this matter. Both published and unpublished. And I hope at a different point in my career to write about them elsewhere, and I'm not familiar where else the Chamfaur discusses, if anywhere else. Baram, nonetheless, But in regards to our conversation, it's very important that we should delineate everything that happened. What I'm going to tell you the truth is that I'm going to need time to continue the shiur. If it's okay with you, I would like to continue the shiur. Uh, for those of you who need to go at whatever point in time, um, please don't feel bad that you're going. I just don't want to stop in the middle of this because to continue it in another week would just be very complicated for me. Is it okay with you if I continue teaching today? Yeah, maybe we'll just shorten the Q&A that we normally do. We'll just go into that time. Okay, thank you. So, step one, says Chacham Faor. You know, if you just want for a moment, before we get into the history, if you want to see what Rabbi Salam Moshe Chazan writes about the reform movement and the leaders of the reform movement before he's influenced by Tzvi Hirschlern, you can look in footnote 63. I just wanted you to see 63. It's actually not necessarily before, it's just when he's not under the influence of Rabbi Tzvi Hirschlern. So we'll go a few lines down. Uh, one, two, three, four, five, six lines down. Uh, when he's still the rabbi of Rome. Rabbi Salmosha Chazan writes about Moses Mendelssohn. You heard of Moses Mendelssohn before? So Moses Mendelssohn, who we attribute to be the leader, the founder of Reform Jewry, and really that's not necessarily accurate, but let's just pretend for a moment that it is. Someone had critiqued Moses Mendelssohn. So listen to the words of Rabbi Salmosha Chazan. Chalila lanu ladun laramban v'lachaverav it's forbidden for us to judge the author of the Sefer Bi'ur. The Bi'ur is Rabbi Moses Mendelssohn's commentary in the Torah. It's forbidden to judge him unfavorably. That was Moses Mendelssohn's Hebrew name. And if you find something wrong in the writings of Rabbi Moses Mendelssohn, Zichonol blessed memory, that you could read them maybe in two ways, one positive and one negative. 
מתורת דתנו שתתעלה לדונונו כף זכות מכרעת. He said, we have no choice but according to halakha to judge him favorably and to read it in a positive way. אחרי שהחברים מקשיבים האלה עשו והצליחו ועלתה בידם לחדש כנשר נורי חכמוחמד לשוננו הקדושה. He says, who else except for these holy rabbis, Moses Mendelssohn and his friends, who brought back the dignity of the Hebrew language to Am Yisrael. והם שפתחו לנו הפתע אשר היה סגור מימות הגאונים לדרוש טעמה דקראי על פי הקבלה הנאמנה and they are the first ones since the time of the גאונים to actually open up the Torah and understand it truthfully according to the Hebrew grammar and what's written in the text ולאנשים יקרים מחוכמה ומכבוד כאלה and about these holy righteous uh, dignified people איך יהיה אנוש? אנוש! How can a human being, mere human beings אשר לא הגיע לקרסו להם, that never reached the ankles of greatness of Moses Mendelssohn. לדונם לכף חובה מכרעת, חלילה, how dare you judge them unfavorably to these great rabbis? עוד הפעם, he said, I'm repeating myself, in case you don't believe me. אם נראה ברמב"ן, if we find in the writings of Moses Mendelssohn, איזה ביורים כבורח מדרשת חז"ל, that he explains something not compatible with the way that our rabbis in the Talmud explain the Torah, עם כל זה דילהון לאמרי דינהו, ואנו טוענים עליו לצד זכות, we'll still judge him favorably, כי מפני שלא היה תלמודי בעצם מימי נוריו כחברו נפתלי שבע רצון. Because he wasn't as Talmudically trained as his colleague. His colleague was the famous uh, נפתלי, I wrote his name down in English because it's not pronounced the same way we call him in, uh, נפתלי הרץ was his name, or, or uh, Uh, Wiesel, Wiesel, he was a famous leader of the early reform movement. By the way, you think he is a leader of the reform movement. In the Lithuanian Yeshivot, his books on Musag were widely studied until very recently. He was considered one of the great rabbis of Europe, and he wrote many books that were very well accepted among the Ashkenazi rabbis in Europe at the time. If you want to just believe me for a moment that the founding of the reform movement, the Haskalah, the Enlightenment, is not as black and white as it is today, and a lot of what you hear about people from then is projected back on them to make them look worse or to make them look bad, and people are just not being honest about what really happened and what Europe really looked like. He says, if you find something wrong, then you just say, Ashrav Mishish Gotav Sifurot. How great it will be for a person who's Shigagot, whose mistakes you can count them. It's a title we use about a great rabbi. Meaning, okay, so most men have made a few mistakes. Pfft, only a few mistakes. Lucky, you wish you could only make a few mistakes when it came to Torah. How does this same Rabbi Salam Shachazan, just a little bit later in his career, write an entire book against the reform movement? And curiously, that only begins when Svi Hirsch Laren brings him into Europe. Says Chacham Faur, it starts because those things are not coincidental. Tzvi Hirsch Laren has his hand around the neck of Chachmei Eretz Yisrael. And he has no shame to manipulate whichever rabbis he needs to manipulate, to play them like puppets, to accomplish whatever personal interest he has against different people around the world. Let's read together on page Chavbet. So uh, Isaac, I don't know if you can tell me what page that is in the PDF. Back in footnote 61, but in the next page, so where it says a bit. Do you guys see where I am? Yeah. He knew exactly, exactly how to cause 
his rabbis, I mean the people that were on his payroll, to fight against those opponents until he did, they destroyed them. The Sephardic rabbis were coaxed into a war that was not theirs because they were misled that the war they're fighting is a holy war to protect the Torah. Which Sephardic rabbi wouldn't want to fight a pure war for the sake of a Kadosh Baruch For example, I couldn't find any entries in the encyclopedias that I have on this rabbi Aaron Zelig. But when Rabbi Aaron Zelig fought against Lerin, all of the rabbis, Sephardic rabbis in Eretzel, stood up against Rabbi Aaron Zelig to shut him down. This whole entire parasha, this, this whole episode, which has not sufficiently been researched, you can find it printed in Amsterdam. Both that belong to the, the, the famous, the very famous Navon family. Let me tell you just for a moment about the Navon family. So, Rabbi Yehuda Navon, was born, we don't know, but he passed away in 1844 in Yerushalayim. He was the Shadar, he was also one of these messengers outside of Israel, and he was the Rishon Zion. He was the chief Sephardic rabbi of Israel, uh, at least at that point in Yerushalayim, for a short period of Jewish history. His relative is none other than Rabbi Binyamin Mordechai Navon, who was born in 1788 and passed away in 1851. He was a rabbi, he was a Mekubal in Eretz Israel. He wrote some famous books, so Nechba Bakesev, Get Mekushar, he's a very famous Sephard Chacham. He was the Rosh Av Batei Hadin of Yerushalayim, and he himself was also the head of Yeshivat HaMekubalim in Jerusalem. So these are not insignificant Sephardic rabbis. These are the chief Sephardic rabbi, the chief Av Bedin of the Sephardim, the Rosh Shiva of all of the Mekubalim of Eretz Yisrael. These were the rabbis we're talking about. These were the opponents of Tzvi Hirsh Laren. Watch what happens. When these rabbis... They wanted to fire Leren. They wanted to get rid of him. All of the Sephardic rabbis joined together and ganged up against them. You're talking about the chief Sephardic rabbi of Israel. You're talking about the head of the Baddin of Yerushalayim. You're talking about the Rosh Yivav the Mekubalim. They decided Tzvi Hirsh Leren is unfit for this position of collecting money. And the Sephardic rabbis are puppeteered by Tzvi Hirsh Leren to stand up and fight against these two great Chachamim. Parashah Zoh Bekuntres Emet Meretz, you're going to find this also, sorry, you're going to find this also in this book, Meretz, which nobody studies, nobody has, has been printed in a few hundred years. A rabbi of the stature of Rabbi Navon, was forced to apologize publicly to Laren for disgracing him. And they dictated that when Rabbi Navon would write to Laren, he would address him with the following titles. Listen carefully to this arrogant man and what he demanded from the chief rabbis of Eretz Israel. Melech Shalem, you wholesome king. Kafil Nashan Malach Malka, we wish double blessings on you, our king. Royalty, he's a king. He runs Eretz Israel. The power is his. And he had the same devarav. He had to finish his words with a prayer. We bless you, our king, that you should rule for many years from your throne. You should become even greater than you are now. 
You should never, your kingdom should never wane. May it be Hashem's will. He was bullied into submission to Tzvi Hershlein to apologize to him by calling him our king and to bless him with such blessings. When Rabbi Natan Amram decided to write a book about this and to prove that Tzvi Hershlein was corrupt, and he was misappropriating funds. He wrote, a, he documented the corrupt behavior of Tzvi Hirsch He delineated the danger that Tzvi Hirsch was causing to the Jewish institutions in Eretz and his friends stood up and opposed this Rabbi Natan Amram. Ben Hayeta. Among the other things that happened, one of the chief complaints of Rabbi Natan Amram was, that without these messengers, the communities would cease to send money to the Jews of Eretz Israel. He was even able to prove that he was correct. He went to Amsterdam and proved to them based on one of the Gabaim, one of the, the, the leaders of the Jewish community in Europe, who gave him testimony about how little money they are now sending to Eretz Israel in comparison to the past. The Gabai told him, that in the first year they sent 4,000 francs. The next year, 3,000 francs. Until the last year when Rabbi Natan Amram came, they had went from 4,000 francs that this synagogue used to send to the Jews of Eretz Israel to 400 francs that they sent because of the lack of personal connection to the fundraisers like Rabbi Natan Amram. How does Laren respond to the attack on his uh, financial affairs? By the way, we see one big thing about Tzvi Hirsch Laren. Ultimately, Tzvi Hirsch Laren comes to a major defeat. He gets sick at the end of his life. His family tries to hide it up so that nobody stops donating to his fund. His brothers try to take over in his passing. Tzvi Hirsch Laren underestimated one thing. He underestimated the power of the media. When the situation here in San Diego, the police didn't take it seriously at first. Once the media got involved, you should see who started calling me. Chief of police, chief captains, the people that are candidates for mayor, city council members. The media has tremendous power. It is a danger for anyone to try. Media can also spread terrible lies. But media is a powerful force that is needed in a free society. Tzvi Hirsch Laren thought that you could just write books against them and he could dismiss them because he had all the good guys on his side. He didn't realize that people's vote is much more powerful than he ever gave people credibility for, credit for. He thought that he could manipulate people, but ultimately the people won. Though we lost. I'll explain in just a moment. How does Laren deal with accusations? The first thing he says to Rabbi Natan Amam is, based on what I remember, you're wrong. So his first response to Rabbi Natan Amam is, you're wrong because I don't remember it the way you remember it. That's a solid proof. Rabbi Natan said, let's verify these claims. said, bring me your ledgers. Let me see your books. I want to see the books of money that come from Europe to Israel. You show me where that money went. 
אחד העובדים שם, one of the workers, these are in the words of Rabbi Nathan Amram who was there, one of the workers takes the ledger, he took the ledger, on this date we send this amount. He turned some more pages. Oh, and on this page, look how much money we sent. We sent even more money. He kept doing this. That, oh, look, on this day, he was making up dates and numbers. Oh, look, we sent even more money on this day. Oh, and on this day, we sent even more money. He was putting on a charade. I immediately told him, I believe you that the guy who's reading is saying what he's saying. Will you let me also look into the book while he reads? I want to see the numbers for myself. Forgive me that I don't trust him. Who, Leren Hishivani, Leren said, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, this is confidential information. I won't allow you to look over his shoulder. We're not allowed to show you the inside of this book. So here comes Rabbi Natan Amam and says, I will support you if you just show some transparency. Let me look over the guy's shoulder when he's fabricating numbers. Svihar Shleran says, no, I won't let you do it. When someone says, uh, sir, ma'am, can I search your vehicle? And you tell the police officer, no way. So yeah, you may be one of the few people standing up for your constitutional rights. You may also be one of those people who's hiding things in your car you don't want someone to find. Svihersh Laren doesn't want anyone to look into his books because he knows he won't survive anybody looking into his books. Al dato hamitit shel Laren katav Rav Amram. Rav Natan Amram writes about Svihersh Laren. Lo echpat lo midai afilu imivutlu kol hashlichim. That Svihersh Laren really doesn't care about the Jews of Israel. He couldn't care less if all of these rabbis stopped coming. He doesn't care. It's all about him. That's Rabbi Natan Amram, the rabbis, Navon. They're crushed by the Zafardah Chachamim because Laren uses them to stay king of Jerusalem. The paragraph at the bottom of this page. Achad mitomchav anilhavim shel Laren. One of the main supporters of Laren. Haya Rabbeinu Yaakov and Tebi. Was Rabbi Yaakov and Tebi. Now I mentioned him earlier. Are you familiar at all with the name Rabbi Yaakov and Tebi? Is anyone familiar with the Damascus affair? Have you heard of the Damascus affair? I think I'm going to start giving a Jewish history class. Damascus affair <laughs> happened in the year 1840. There were competitions between the Christians and the Muslims and the Jews in Damascus. A change in government and people vying for attention and for funds. Ultimately, there's a blood libel that's said about the Jewish community that a visiting priest who was visiting Damascus was kidnapped by the Jewish people and murdered for their rituals. You know, another blood libel, but this time in an Arabic country, in a Muslim country. Ultimately, what happens is 13 of the greatest Jewish leaders are kidnapped by the government and four of them are executed. Moses Montefiore gets involved and manages to get the other nine freed. But that's only after four of them are already killed. One of the rabbis who was taken captive and later is freed is none other than Rabbi Yaakov Entebi, who was a famous leader of Sephardic Jewry at this point in time. He was born in Chalab in Aleppo in 1787. He dies in 1846 and he's buried in the Mountain of Olives in Jerusalem. It makes sense if you remember that I told you that Rabbi Natan Amram is the son-in-law of Rabbi Yaakov Entebi. So if Rabbi Yaakov Entebi is one of the main supporters of Laren, Svihar's Laren, 
His son-in-law is one of the main opponents of Tzvi Herschler. I suggest if you can, get your hands on a Wikipedia entry on the Damascus affair. Just read about it a little bit. So one of the main supporters of Sfirish Laren was Rabbi Yaakov and Tebi. Hayadumi Parshat Alilat Damesek, who was known from the whole story of the Damascus affair. After the Damascus affair, he leaves Syria and goes to Jerusalem. Where, by the way, he refuses to take on a rabbinic position. He just wants to live now. I have a friend who's a rabbi, he's looking for a job as a rabbi. I said, Rabbi so-and-so, what is your requirement? You're looking to be a rabbi community, what's the main thing you're looking for? So the main thing I'm looking for is a community where the members of the synagogue are not going to try to murder me. That's all I'm looking for. After that, I'm happy with anything else. Uh, the Tzarenu, I should tell you, I'm very lucky to be in a community that's, that's a community that we built together. Because we built it together, I, I don't suffer many of the indignities that other rabbis have to suffer as rabbis of communities. But I should tell you that some of the more talented minds at Am Yisrael decide not to be rabbis because of the ugliness that goes into the dynamic between rabbis and communities. And how many of those talented rabbis who attempt being rabbis of communities ultimately leave the rabbinate because why should I do it? And who loses are the Jewish people because the Jewish people are left with uh, uh, incompetent and substandard uh, rabbis to lead them all around the world and everyone pays the price for that. He decides, enough is enough, I don't want to be a rabbi, I just want to retire in Yerushalayim. Look at his support of Rabbi Yaakov Lern and these books. Sorry. Says Rabbi Faur, let me show you just one example of how much Rabbi Yaakov and Tebi supported Svi Hirschlern. The Kuntres Edut Israel, the book that was printed in, in Jerusalem, this book was printed against. Rabbi Moshe Turjaman, who was an opponent of Sri Hirsch Laren, uh, there is a book written by Moshe David Gaon, which we quoted, who gave us an introduction about Rabbi Shem Tov Gagin. He talks about Rabbi Moshe Turjaman. I don't have this book in front of me, uh, so I wasn't able to look it up and didn't find much information about Rabbi Moshe Turjaman independently. Neymar, it says about him, listen to the following. This is what writes Rabbi Yaakov and Tebi. It has recently happened that one of the great rabbis has decided to become a heretic against his people, a traitor. He became Mastin. He joined the Satan. Moshe Turjman. His, his name is Moshe Turjman. Ubno and his son Tolat Yaakov. The worm Yaakov. So now he's using it to, as a derogatory word. I mean, this Moshe Turjman and his son, the audacity they have to betray the Jewish people by fighting against our great friend Rabbi Tzvi Hirschler. One of the main critiques against Moshe Turjman, Rabbi Moshe Turjman, is that he dared write a letter against Tzvi Hirsch Laren. Look at the words of Rabbi Yaakov and Tebi against this Rabbi Moshe Turjman. This is meant to be a play on the words. There's a letter, the daughter of a disease. But what's Agrat? Have you heard of Agrat Bat Machlat? Have you heard of this name in, in rabbinic literature? Anybody? I have no Kabbalists in the crowd. Agrat Bat Machlat is the name of a, a female demon. She's one of the worst of the demons that exists in the demon kingdom in rabbinic literature, in rabbinic mystical literature. She even has an entry, if I'm not mistaken, in the Talmud. There's a mention of Agrat Bat Machlat. So he's calling the letter of Rabbi Moshe Turjaman against Tzvi Hirsch Laren, he's, he's titling the letter the name of one of the worst demons in Jewish mysticism. 
ששלחו בליכת עמה ליד מאור עינינו הרב הצדיק המפורסם נשיא הארץ חנוך צבי הירש לרן. He sent this evil letter about our rabbi, the genius, the giant, the righteous tzaddik, the prince of the land of Israel, our rabbi Tzvi Hirsch Leren. Look at all these titles that he gives Rabbi Tzvi Hirsch Leren. And this rabbi Moshe Turchman sent me a copy of the letter he wrote to Tzvi Hirsch Leren. Grief after grief overcame me. Look at the top of the next page in the footnotes. I, my heart was full of grief after grief when I saw the evil things he wrote about Rabbi Tzvi Hirsch Leren. We should rip our clothing when we read these blasphemous words against Tzvi Hirsch Leren. We should rip our hearts into 12 pieces. I almost died because of the suffering that I endured from reading this letter about Rabbi Tzvi Hirsch Leren. All of the lies and the blasphemy, the lashon hara, the slander and the gossip that this rabbi dared speak about Tzvi Hershler. Rabbi Yaakov Tebi is a big fan of Tzvi Hershler. He sees him as the prince of Eretz Yisrael. How dare someone oppose him? I want to read to you one last paragraph. And with this we'll wrap up our shiur. In three, Gimel. לבסוף, ultimately, לרן הצליח להסיט הרבנים הספרדים שבארץ ישראל להתערב בריב לא להם שמתחולל אז בקהילות אירופה. צבי הרש לרן managed not just to crush his opposition in Jerusalem at the hands of his rabbis that he owned and supported, but also to drag them into wars. What do Sephardic Jews have to do with European wars over the reform movement? Which Sephardic country struggled with the reform movement? How do you get the rabbis of Yerushalayim, Iraq, Syria? How do you get the rabbis to drag themselves into a war in Berlin? Tzvi Hirsch Leren is the answer to that question. There's two reasons why Tzvi Hirsch Leren dragged the Sephardic rabbis in. The external reason His external reason, his cover story, was to fight against the evil nature of the reform movement and its attacks on traditional Judaism. It's a threat to traditional Judaism. The real internal reason? He convinced the rabbis of Israel that at the root of the reform movement was their lack of support, financial support for the Jews in Eretz Israel. And he convinced not just himself, but he convinced the rabbis of Sepharad. Listen guys, if you let the reform movement rear its ugly head, you're going to lose your funding. Because these Jews are not going to give you money. So instead of him being the problem, he deflects the problem onto the reform movement. Now you're a rabbi sitting in Eretz Yisrael. You hear that there is a revolution going on in Ashkenaz. There are Jews who don't want to support the Jews of Eretz Yisrael. There are Jews who are fighting against Hashem. There are Jews who are fighting against the Torah. There are Jews who are standing up against righteous people like Tzvi Hirsch Lern. And all of a sudden, if you're a Sephardic rabbi in Eretz Yisrael, wouldn't you sign in a proclamation against the greatest danger to Jewry, especially Israeli Jewry, in all of Jewish history? Of course you would. Because Tzvi Hirsch Lern knows how to manipulate every situation to get what he wants from whoever he wants at the right place in the right time. 
שיתוף הפעולה בין הרבנים והקהילות הספרדים ובין הפקידים והמרכנים של ארץ ישראל, הביאה את הספרדים למצב חדש. What managed to happen because of this collaboration between Svi Hirsch Lerner and the Sephardic Jews of Eretz Israel, Hamatzav Azehu, it leads to these four things. Listen to these four conclusions, uh, five conclusions. The first, Nituk Ma'kilot Ayudiot Sephardiot Vashkenaziot B'Marav Europa. We disconnected ourselves. Sephardic and Ashkenazi rabbis of Jerusalem created. They talk about this gap between diaspora Jewry and Israeli Jewry. You hear about this a lot, especially in conversations surrounding matters of religion between denominations and outside of Israel and in the land of Israel, especially surrounding the Kotel and how to use the Kotel. Okay, you've heard this before. It's not something new to you. This doesn't start 50 years ago or 70 years ago. This starts with Tzvi Hirsch Lerner. He is the one who drives the wedge. There is no natural, organic connection anymore between the Jews of Israel and the diaspora, the, the Western diaspora at least. Because you have to go through a middleman. And that middleman means that you'll never meet each other. And what you know about each other is only going to be what I tell you about each other. You trust me for your information. This is exactly what Tzvi Hirsch Lerner does. The second, Choser Atzma'ut B'Magbit V'Chadukat Aksafim. We lost our independence to fundraise money for ourselves, which means the Jewish institutions in Eretz Israel, they lacked financial independence. Because they didn't have financial independence, whoever, what do they say in Hebrew? Baal hame'ahu, baal hade'ah, the one who holds the $100 bill, the one who holds the money, he's the one who decides where the money goes. I'm donating to you. You have done every synagogue in the world. They pat the rabbi and the rabbi, I'm giving you money. You do whatever I'm going to tell you. That's what I, for my 100 bucks, I bought you, rabbi. I was once at a gala banquet with a man in San Diego here. And the rabbi who was running the banquet was walking around the table and the man sitting next to me, I was talking to him. He turns to this rabbi and says, Rabbi, don't worry, you don't have to say hello to me. I'm not a rich guy, just keep walking. Because that's how it works in the world. You're dealing with a corrupt Jewish community where money talks. I had a situation once where someone called me and my wife, they came to talk to us. Don't not speaking about any particular place, somewhere in the world where there was a child who was being bullied in school. And they wanted to know what strategy. The school wasn't really helping with the bullying, so they wanted to know what they could tell the school that would help their child. Rebani, do you remember the first question I asked them when they wanted to know what we should tell the school? What was my first question to them? Whether or not they had tuition assistance. I asked them whether or not they received tuition assistance from the Jewish school. If they receive tuition assistance from the Jewish school, you can kiss away the dream of someone actually caring about your child. Because you're a nobody, because you're a loser, because you don't have money. If you're a big donor of the school, I promise you that on a dime they're going to fire the abusive teacher, they're going to throw the kids out of school. It all depends how much money you have. I said, are you I said, listen, it pains me to tell you that, but this is the state of the Jewish Union. Our teachers and rabbis don't care about what's good. They care about what pays. It's corruption at its finest. And your child stands no chance in this school if you receive tuition assistance. Go take yourself somewhere righteous. Put your kids in a place where people are going to take care of them. It's unacceptable that someone should abuse your child. If you don't have a school, take them home. Third, when we lose financial independence, the third thing happens. Our educational institutions are now hit. Instead of making a Sephardic ideal in the land of Israel where you have yeshivot and also the Ashkenazi schools. Remember we spoke about the Doresh Tzion school. The Sephardic and Ashkenazi school that was going to teach secular studies, that was going to teach languages, that was going to make a new world of Jews in the land of Israel. But you can't fund that if Laren decides who gets money and who doesn't. 
And so it shouldn't surprise you. Fast forward 150 years, you're founding a state of Israel. When you come and you see the Jewish community in disarray, institutions don't have money, people are begging for food in the streets because we've taken away from them the independence needed to run a functional community. Four, If until today, rabbis were united in Eretz Yisrael, Sephardic rabbis worked alongside each other, who else can get two friends sitting on the same Beit Adin in Yerushalayim to wage war against each other? If not the one who uses his money to manipulate those rabbis into a war against each other, because I don't care what it's going to do to Judaism. And I don't care what it's going to do to the Jewish community of Yerushalayim. I don't care what it's going to do to the friendship between those rabbis and their families. I care about what's good for me, and what's good for my money, and what's good for my fundraising. And last but not least, לשמש גורם בפרשיות וסוגיות לנהם, אשר אין להם דבר ועניין לו בתחילתם ולא בסופן. says Rabbi Faur, Ultimately, this is used as a tool to drag Sephardic rabbis into wars that don't belong to them and that they were going to get damaged from. Wars that they had no involvement in in the beginning and they have nothing to do with at the end of it. says a Faur that really if you would look at Jewish history, And you would say, can you imagine if Sephardic Jewry was independent and proud and not dependent on some fanatical European banker, not just for finances, but for religious vision? If Sephardic rabbis couldn't be manipulated to be brought into an ugly war that destroyed Europe and is still destroying Western countries today, the war between factioning Ashkenazi denominations can you imagine if Sephardic Jewry was really that ideal that we've spoken about so many times here? Where you could belong to any part of the religious spectrum? Where you could have all levels of education and professionalism? Where people could belong to one community with rabbis that they like and they agree with? A moderate, sane, balanced community? It wouldn't just have helped Sephardim. But Ashkenazim would know that there's another option. There's another option even for Ashkenazim to function in a different type of community than one that is constantly warring with itself. But Tzvi Hershlein, Tzvi Hershlein wasn't going to let any of that happen. Why should I help save Judaism when I can single-handedly destroy it? But when you look around the Jewish community today, and I mentioned to you examples last week, you see rabbis fighting with each other, denominations that won't talk to each other, won't look at each other, this person tells you you can eat this because it's under my heksha and that one is treif and then my shakita and this one, my school is this and your yeshiva good for nothing and this smicha is good and that conversion is not on the approved list and the bakoba, more and more every day it gets worse and worse. Stop for one minute and say, can I follow the money? Can I find out who is the Tzvi Hirsch Laren of today? And I'm telling you, it's not just one. Unfortunately, we have hundreds and thousands of them. Who's pulling the strings? Who's dragging people into conversations that they don't belong to? How do rabbis who've never held a cell phone before put out proclamations against everybody who owns an iPhone and you think it's normal? How do rabbis with no medical training find themselves signing onto proclamations on matters that only medical doctors who are experts in certain fields even have the right to share an opinion about? Of course, anything can be marketed to a Torah scholar as being the next righteous war of Torah. 
And some of our greatest minds have fallen prey to that manipulation. It doesn't mean bad about them. I didn't mean anything in today's shiur to tell you that those rabbis were manipulated, manipulated and therefore they're good for nothing. But instead of attributing righteousness, instead of perpetuating the manipulation of our rabbis, I choose to see words like we read from Bashem Tov Gagin, a defeat of the reform movement, not as an ideology. But I told you in last week's class, I'm not reform, I'm not orthodox, I'm not conservative, I don't belong to any of these denominations. But when we look at it and say, that part of Rabbi Shem Tov Gagin's legacy, why do we have to continue? This part of the wars between Rabbi Israel and Moshe Chazan, of all the things you want to remember him for, why remember him for the one book of Kinat Zion instead of the other dozens of books he gave us? When we're going to have a new Jewish conversation, it means stopping the injustices that were done to our Chachamim. To stop that manipulation, it's over. This war is over. You're not winning anybody's hearts by dividing the Jewish community right down the middle, a hundred different factions. Maybe Yaakov and Tebi said you could rip your heart into 12 pieces. Am Yisrael's heart has been ripped into 1,200 pieces. We only have so much of a heart. We only have that much that we can do with the amount of heart that we have left. Look around the world. Look at Am Yisrael. Do you think what Am Yisrael needs to be fighting about today is how we pray at the Kotel? There are Jews who want to pray. They want to pray. You think that our job has to be to throw them out of the Kotel? That's our job? What about the 11 million Jews who don't even pray? What about those Jews? You think this is going to do something for anybody? Well, forgive me if I'm emotional about this. It hurts me to the depths of my, my being. It hurts me. Nobody for one moment is going to think, sitting here, then my friend, like I told you about last week, my friend who's a reformed rabbi, nobody for one moment is going to think that him and I agree on anything. One thing I can agree on is that he is my brother, my biological brother. He's a brother in faith also. If I disagree, I'm going to disagree. I have the right to speech. I have the right to fight with you. I don't have the right to wipe you out, to erase you from Jewish history. I don't have that right. And I don't want that right. I'm looking at Am Yisrael, and of all the things that we could be fighting, of all the things we could be fighting, there are people today, alive now, who want nothing more than to wipe out every last Jew on earth. And instead of us all joining together, despite our denominations, and standing up against those people, we decided, okay, neo-Nazis, okay, terrorists, we'll do the work for you, we're going to wipe each other out, don't worry, you don't have to do it for us. Let us destroy ourselves. Let us erase Am Yisrael for good. Because if anybody has the ability to do it, it's us. We've almost done it before. We're pretty close to doing it again. I'm asking for you, for all of you. I don't really care where anybody falls out on the religious spectrum. The only thing I care is that you know that at this Benamidash, you have the right to pull up a chair and to share and to talk and to have ideas and discuss them without any bias without any persecution, that there's one place that is safe to study Torah. I'm not always right. You're not always right. None of us are always right. HaKadosh Baruch is right. And the one thing that HaKadosh Baruch wants, Ma'ani mevakesh. What does the Midrash say? HaKadosh Baruch asks Am Yisrael, what do I ask? Shatiyu mechabdim zedzeh. You will learn to respect each other. What does any parent want? No parent wants their kids to live together in the same house for the rest of eternity. It's not normal. 
a brother and a sister, and they have to get married and have families. What do I want from you? There's nothing more painful for a parent than to see their children not able to sit at the same dinner table together. It breaks their heart. I'm telling you this as a person who has in my own family, Hashem, a healthy amount of things that breaks parents' hearts. There's nothing that hurts them more. Nothing hurts HaKadosh Baruch more than to see Am Yisrael not willing to sit at the same table together. Jews want to come to the Kotel, you can't pray with me. Jews want to come to your Beda Knesset, I won't count you for a minyan. Jews want to marry your child, you're not good enough for me. You know what that does to HaKadosh Baruch Hu? You know what that does to our hearts? To those of us who share the same living, breathing heart of Am Yisrael? And maybe to bring it all back. We mentioned about righteous women that redeemed the Jewish people in Hanukkah. One of those righteous women was none other than Devorah the prophetess. Not Devorah, my wife. She will be one of the righteous women who will redeem the Jewish people. But for right now, Devorah the prophetess, I'm talking about in our history. Our rabbis tell us that Devorah always sat under a tree. Her betadin was under a tree. Which type of tree? I'm reading some of your lips. A palm tree. That's why the, that's why the book of Rabbi Moshe Kodovero is titled Tomer Devorah, the palm tree of Devorah. A rabbi say, why did you sit under a palm tree? Because a palm tree is exactly what Devorah wanted to bring to the Jewish people. A palm tree, it's a unique type of tree. It has one, one trunk, it goes all the way up, but only at the top does it branch out. But for its whole main being, it's one. Amisrael branches in all kinds of different directions at the top. But the bottom line is it's one heart. We share one heart. There's one living, breathing heart of Amisrael. Devorah lived to bring this message to Amisrael. But though you want a place to start on how to look at other Jews that are not just like you, I actually suggest the book, We've done parts of it together here. All the stuff that's Kabbalistic, you don't understand, just skip it. The first chapter of Tom and Devorah will change your life. We owe it to Devorah. We owe it to our Chamim. We owe it to our Father in Heaven, to make sure that we build a Jewish future where all of Amisad belongs to it. Is it hard? Absolutely. Do I have an answer to all of the problems and dilemmas we'll face? Absolutely not. But I know that I have to do it, and we have to do it, and we have no choice but to do it, because the track that we're on, the trajectory that we're on, is only one of destruction. And we have to root recalculation, bring Amisad back to a place where all of us, how beautiful and how pleasant it is, when siblings can sit down together, sit down together and talk, sit down together and fight, and sit down together and love each other and marry each other and be with each other and just be who they need to be. Bezad Hashem, I hope to live to see that day. For right now, I'm lucky to be in a Ben Midash here where all of us can feel that way together. And Bezad Hashem, I look forward to learning with you, God willing, next week.